Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 22, originally recorded on July 22, 2011. In the last episode, Rabbi Shalom explored Israel in the context of our Sunday school curriculum. In this episode, Rabbi Shalom explores the special relationship between America and Israel and how that relationship has changed over time. For more information about Kol Hadash and humanistic Judaism, please visit our website at kolhadash.com. If you would like to support Rabbi Shalom or Kol Hadash, there is a link to our online donation form on the website. The last time I was in Israel, in December of 2010, I had a revelation. But not the kind that normally happens. <laughs> My revelation was that Israel is New York City. Not just by the manners. <laughs> but Israel is New York City in a lot of ways. New York City, the greater metropolitan area, has around 10 million people. Israel has around 7 million or so, uh, perhaps 8 million people. New York City is a greater metropolitan area where you can more or less get from anywhere to anywhere, most of the time on a train or something. And Israel, other than Iran, is relatively accessible from one place to the other. It's really not that far from one end to the other. In New York, you have city talk shows and city radio stations and city media, and usually somebody knows somebody knows somebody who is on TV. In Israel, everybody knows somebody. And somebody knows somebody who's in the Knesset or who works for somebody in the Knesset or who's it. It's not like a nation of 300 million people where getting on ABC Nightly News is a challenge. It's like New York City. So getting on the news is good, but not impossible. And Israel is like New York in that sometimes New Yorkers have this maybe rude to each other, but protective of each other at the same time mentality, that we're all New Yorkers, they might say. Well, Israelis have the same mentality. And the New York Times columnist David Brooks once described this when he related an anecdote. A friend of his called information, asking for the phone number to a restaurant. And the operator said, we don't want to eat here. <laughs> and gave him the phone number to two other restaurants <laughs> that they thought would be a better place for him to go. Uh, or he relates another story where a friend of his was in line at a bank looking to deposit some money, and the two people behind him in line get into an argument over where he should be putting his money. <laughs> it's a family for good and for ill, uh, where everyone's in it together, but that means you're in it together. <laughs> Now, the dilemma in dealing with the relationship between America and Israel is that some people in America like New York City, but some people in America do not understand New York City. They don't understand the mentality, they don't understand the dynamics. I remember reading a book that came out about 10 years ago called Postco, about a city in Iowa where a group of Orthodox Jews had moved to open a slaughterhouse. You may have seen it in the news more recently where that slaughterhouse was busted for employing a little bit later. Uh, but at the time, it was simply a, uh, a new phenomenon with all of these New York Jews moving to the middle of Iowa with their New Yorkisms. It became a tension between the Jewish community and the non-Jewish Iowa postal community. Um, but a lot of the dynamic, interestingly enough to me, seemed to be New York versus Iowa and not necessarily Jewish versus Christian. 
In some ways, the relationship of American Jews to Israeli Jews can be similar. Once I realized that New York was Israel, and Israel was New York, it explained, first of all, why so many Israelis have found their way to New York, or sometimes to Los Angeles. But it also explained how to get around it. And once I started acting like I act in New York, it was much easier. Sometimes to win the argument, you need volume. It's not argument, it's volume that gets you to win. You want a parking spot. It's not courtesy. <laughs> this is the bad end, you see? And so once I understood this part of the personality, I could realize this is an insight into Israel that makes me able to get along much better. In some ways, it's a nutshell of the dynamic between Israel and America today. Because there are times we get along very well, and there are times we don't. Now, before there was a state, of course, there was a Jewish community in the land of Israel, often called Yeshuv. In fact, they often referred to themselves as Palestine, since that was the name of uh, the British territory at the time. The Palestine Post was the major newspaper, now called the Jerusalem Post. They used Palestinian pounds, that was the currency. Um, and so when you referred to Palestinians in 1937, you were referring to Jews building a Jewish state, ironically enough. But at that time, there was a paradox, you see. American Jews, many of them, were Zionists. They supported the building of a Jewish homeland or even a Jewish state in Israel. But they had no plans to move there. They liked the idea, but for somebody else. And part of it was a concern that perhaps they would be accused of, of dual loyalty. After all, if there's a Jewish state and we're Jews, shouldn't we feel loyal to that state? Now, one can make the same argument about Irish Americans or Italian Americans or German Americans, or Japanese Americans. And of course, in the 1940s, those arguments were made. In the First World War, certainly about German Americans, and in the Second World War, certainly about Japanese Americans. And so this was fresh on people's minds. What will the dynamic be? There were a number of groups in America that were Jewish groups even opposed to Zionism. One was called the American Council for Judaism. Its founders were active in the classical reform movement, they felt that Judaism was a religious identity instead of religious ideals, and who needs a state for religion? They liked the separation of religion and government. In particular, they were concerned that as Americans, they were Americans first, and Jews by religion. Another group in America that was opposed to Zionism was the American Jewish Socialist Movement. They were internationalists. Many of them were sympathetic to the Soviet Union. And their language of choice for Jewish culture was Yiddish and not Hebrew. They saw Zionism as a ridiculous utopian dream, not as an ideal solution to Jewish concerns. Now after the Holocaust, between 45 and 48, there was a need felt for a refuge for Jews. America had closed its doors, and a place was needed for Jews who needed to flee. But we also found in the American Jewish community that there was a psychological compensation in having a Jewish army that fought back that resisted faith, that fought for Jewish dignity and autonomy. We had the images of the salutes, the pioneer, the farmer, not the accountant. You know, the Jewish accountant has never been a hero of Jewish iconography, even if it may be much more typical than the Jewish farmer. But the salutes, the pioneer, the Jewish soldier with the Jewish star on his helmet, the image of the new Jew, of Zionism, who was strong and bold, the new language of Hebrew, a respectable secular Jewish connection 
certainly in the McCarthy era, when Jewish socialism became trait, now Zionism, support for the state of Israel, became kosher. And even then, most Jews weren't involved in a synagogue, but supporting the state of Israel, having a little pushka box on their counter that was no longer for supporting scholars in Israel, today it was to buy treaties, to buy land, to buy roots in the Jewish homeland. Now after 1948, when the state was formed, America is one of the first countries to recognize the state, interestingly enough, over the objections of the State Department. President Truman felt it was important to recognize the Jewish state. And the relationship of Israel and American Jews was one of support at a distance. Again, the numbers of immigration of American Jews to Israel were relatively small. Part of that was because the massive immigration to Israel was taking place from Arab countries, some from the Soviet Union in the 1970s and again in the 1990s, from the Arab countries in the 40s and 50s, North Africa in the 50s and 60s, North Americans a little here, a little there, but no mass immigration. A lot of tourism, a lot of take me to my trees, show me my forests, but not moving there. There was a lot of advocacy and a sense of unity. The phrase, we are one, became very popular for the United Jewish Appeal. APAC, the American-Israel uh, Political Action Committee, was developed. And interestingly enough, it has never had to register as the agent of a foreign power. It is an American lobby organization. Now, if you were advocating for the rights and the perspective of Italy with the American government, you would have to register as a lobby of a foreign nation. But APAC has always been representing itself as in the interest of America in maintaining a strong relationship with Israel. Now, when you read their policy papers, I don't know how they get around <laughs> that rule. But in any case, that is a very deeply rooted lobbying organization that has been very successful in creating on both sides of the political aisle a deep sense of support for Israel as a nation and for its security needs. Now, in the American Jewish community, it was not simply advocacy, there was also a sense of connection, of pride, of ego support. In the run-up to the 1967 war, those who were around and paying attention, remember, there was a tremendous fear of what might happen to Israel, and a tremendous elation at the seemingly miraculous success of the Israeli air force and armies. There was even a strong cultural influence from Israel to America, a little bit the other direction. After all, blue jeans are blue jeans, and a refrigerator is a refrigerator. But today, we even speak Hebrew differently than we used to. Some of you remember when it was Shabbos, and Simchasor, and Sukkot. Well, the Hebrew colonization in, from Israel to America worked. Because today, the standard pronunciation taught in just about every Hebrew school you'll find to the left of the Orthodox is Sukkot. Shabbat, Simchat Torah, and Shabbat Shalom, instead of Good Shabbos. The music that we sang changed. We sang Bashana Haba'ah, the year to come. We sang Yerushalayim Shazahah, Jerusalem of Gold. We even took old songs and sang them in new ways. The special music we had tonight, Yushab Temayim, is a line from Isaiah. But it was sung by the pioneers who were drawing forth water from the wells that they had dug. In Isaiah, it said, You will seek water from the fountains of deliverance. In this case, it was, You will seek water from the fountains you dug yourself. But it was an Israeli folk song that then became sung here with new residents. 
And of course, we felt connected, not only by money, of course, but by energy and enthusiasm. Well, in the last decade, this happy relationship has begun to found There are a lot of reasons why the American Jewish community and the Israeli community have begun to pull apart. But there are also some reasons that they may be pulling together as well. Why do they pull apart? One of the major concerns in Israel, of course, if you read any of the articles that have been going on there in the last few weeks, are a number of initiatives that have challenged the democratic nature of the state. We know for many years that there have been no opportunities for civil marriage, let's say, or civil divorce, because issues of personal status are run by the Orthodox rabbis, the Jews. So there is no opportunity for Jews to marry non-Jew, and there is no opportunity for Jews to marry other Jews as they choose, with the rabbi of their choice. Because, of course, the chief rabbi in Israel is Orthodox, only allowing Orthodox weddings. And so the opportunities for Israelis to marry have been either to endure an Orthodox wedding, even if they are not Orthodox, to do an Orthodox wedding with three people, and then have a public ceremony with their family and friends, or if they choose, to go to Cyprus, or somewhere else to get married. In fact, recently there were over 100 couples that got married at once in a mass wedding. It wasn't the Moody's. In this case, it was Russian and just simply Jews who couldn't get married by the rabbi who wanted to move there. If you're a poet and you want to marry a divorced woman, you have to leave. Well, this has been a concern. And it's been a sense of a feeling of being left out, of being discriminated against. After all, the right to marry, the freedom to marry is basic human right. But now it's gotten worse. There have been committees set up in small towns where the committees have a veto of who can live in the town. Segregation, anyone? There has been a call to investigate left-wing non-governmental organizations for their loyalty to the state. McCarthy, anyone? There's even been a law that's passed the Knesset, signed by the Prime Minister, and now working its way through the Israeli court system, that would ban or uh, make available for prosecution, open to prosecution, any individual or organization who calls for a boycott of either the state of Israel proper or even the settlements of the West Bank. And so it has broken down any legal barrier between the settlements of Israel proper, and it is open to uh, sometimes through this prosecution, anyone who calls for a boycott or staying away from either of those institutions. Now, I don't support a boycott of Israel. I've gone myself, even after calls have been issued. I think that there are positives and values in the state, and there are many people in the state who are working for the same causes that I would value, including these democratic initiatives. In fact, fortunately, the call to investigate these left-wing non-governmental organizations failed in the Knesset by a substantial margin in its most recent vote. Nevertheless, the right of free speech, the right to criticize one's own government, the right to criticize governmental policies in territories whose international status is legitimately up for dispute, those freedoms that we take for granted are certainly under challenge in Israel. And that has made some people nervous. The second issue is, of course, the influence of the Orthodox in Israel, not just on issues of personal status. But now, as you may have heard, in some bus lines in Israel, women sit in the back of the bus. Jim Crow, anyone? Now, what's happened recently is the uh, law and the custom, even outside of the law, of putting women in the back of the bus has been challenged, and the courts have ruled that bus lines are open for anyone to sit anywhere. And they are optional if women choose to sit in the back. 
And there's a number of women who have made it their mission to integrate the buses. And so they, they pull a Rosa Parks. They walk onto the bus and they sit in the front. And these are lines that tend to serve the ultra-orthodox population. And from time to time, women, uh, some women come up and tell them to go in the back, and some men come up and tell them to go in the back. And their response is, no. Now, by law, the bus drivers are supposed to post a sign that says, anyone kids allowed to sit anywhere. Some post it, some don't post it. But the stories of these women have been fascinating. Some women come up to them and say, thank you. But they have the courage to do this. It takes courage to do this. You're facing yell. Remember, it's New York City. You're facing yell. You're facing verbal abuse. Bumping and jostling. But this is the battle being fought there. There was a riot a few years ago when they wanted to open a parking lot in Shabbat. People were driving anyway. They're parking all over the streets. But open a parking lot, take money, a shunner. Well, there's getting a pushback now. And a pushback not only here, but especially there. You may have heard the story of the women of the wall. The women who go to pray at the Western Wall. But they're not allowed to pray there by the Orthodox rabbinate, which supervises the site. A woman there, who was one of the first Israelis ordained as a reform rabbi, brought a Torah soul. And she was arrested for being a woman during Torah soul at the Western Wall. Now, to our credit, a number of American Jews were appalled by this. And they took pictures of multiple women holding Torah souls. They said, See? It's good. It's participation. It's everyone being able to be a Jew and fully participate in our culture. But for some, that's objectionable. It's anathema. And to think that one of the holiest places in Judaism is run by people who wouldn't allow a woman to touch a tortoise skull makes you nervous. Now, the issue of war and peace, of territories and borders, is clearly a major fault line. In fact, you've even begun to hear complaints from the organized Jewish world, and not on the left. In the last month, I saw two news items that jumped out at me. The first was the head of the World Jewish Congress, someone who historically has been an ally of Netanyahu, who has been a critic of President Obama's approach to borders and peace. His name is Ronald Lauder. He criticized Netanyahu's failure to move forward on any kind of initiatives. And he said, when the Palestinians in September come to the United Nations, we will have blown it. And Netanyahu will have blown it. This is the head of the World Jewish Congress criticizing Netanyahu in public. And then even more starkly, just in the last week, the head of uh, the UJIA in Britain, which I believe is the United Jewish Israel Appeal, his name is Mick Davis, he stood up and he said, if Israel does not resolve the issue of the Palestinians, then it may well become an apartheid state. This is the head of a fundraising organization building high between Israel and, and uh, England, and England's Jews. And he used that word that Jimmy Carter got in such trouble for. Apartheid. And he said, when a minority is ruling the majority, and the majority doesn't have full rights, that's what it is. And we don't want to go there. Our sense of Jewish values, our sense of democratic values, make that an apple. We don't want to see this go in that direction. But this kind of criticism has not come up. And he said in his speech, Rick David said, we need to talk about these things. We say them in private, but if we don't say it in public, what's going to happen? Now, a lot of people have been talking over the last year and a half about an article that appeared in the New York Review of Books by the American Jewish writer Peter Beinart. 
and in this article, he said that once upon a time, people believed that American Jewish liberalism and support for Israel were two separate categories, and that American Jews would check their liberalism at the door when it came to Israel. And if Israel had issues or problems in the end, their loyalty to being Jewish, their loyalty to the state of Israel, would supersede their liberalism. But what's happened, says Weinart, among young Jews of the last generation, has been the opposite. When Israel and liberalism come into conflict, when Israel exemplifies non-democratic values or problematic democratic values, or a ethically privileged democracy, well, they object. And they object not by an outright fighting, not by supporting the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, which is a very, very small movement with very limited impact, even as Israelis think it's a terrible disaster and it's dominating American Judaism, it's not. It's a very, very small movement. Nevertheless, they're not divesting and boycotting financially or institutionally. But as Beinart says, and as Thomas Friedman echoed in an article, maybe they're divesting emotionally. They just aren't on the same team. They're not feeling as motivated as they used to to raise money, to advocate, to defend. Their liberalism and their advocacy for Israel seem to have split. Now, I don't want you to get the impression from this that Israel is not a democracy. It is a democracy. It has regular elections that are credible. It has multiple political parties that offer a voice, even to more radical elements on any end of the spectrum, from communist to Arab nationalist to ultra-Orthodox and settler and everything in between. It has a free press. That's how you find out about all corruption in government. It has a military that is supported to civilian authority. It is all the hallmark of a democracy. But it has the problems of a democracy, too. There is uh, the challenge of free speech and security. We face that, too. It is the challenge of a society under siege with hostile threat from beyond, but wanting to create a dynamic economy and personal freedom within. It is a state that is both Jewish and democratic. And sometimes those values work very well together. And sometimes it's a challenge. After all, it is a Jewish value to say, you chose us from all the people. It is also a Jewish value to say, I love your neighbor as yourself. And do not oppress a stranger because you were strangers in Egypt. Those are Jewish values too. So why might Israeli and American Jews be pulled together? Well, I found an interesting parallel. There was a survey that appeared last year of secular Jews in Israel, which represent about 40 to 45 percent of the population. The largest single group that we divided up into traditional, orthodox, and secular. Secular is the largest group. It even used to be the majority. And what you find when you look at what secular Jews do in terms of Jewish life, they act a lot like American Jews. About 15%, 10% keep kosher. That's what American Jews do too. You know, it'd be interesting if you took the survey and said, 85% of American Jews don't keep kosher, instead of listening it the other way around. But guess what? Only 20% of American Jews don't do a Passover sale. 80% of American Jews do Passover Seders, and guess what? 80% of secular Israelis do Passover Seders. 70% of American Jews like Hanukkah candles. 70% of secular Israelis like Hanukkah candles. 40% of American Jews fast in Yom Kippur. About 40% of secular Jews in Israel fast in Yom Kippur. Slightly more uh, Jews in Israel like Shabbat candles, but after all, the buses are shut down, so what are you going to do? <laughs> 
Resolution. And there are objections, there are objections. You know, that woman at the wall that was arrested was not an American Jewish rabbi, she was an Israeli Jewish rabbi. In fact, the Academy of Language in Israel recently authorized a new word, Rabbah, the feminine form for rabbi. Now, our rabbis in our movement of their day over the last several years have tended to use the title Rab, like professor. In Hebrew, you have Professor John and Professor Dina. It doesn't matter, it's the same word titles. So they said, I'm, I'm a Rab, and I'm a man, a Rab, and a woman, fine. I don't know whether they're going to move to being Rab and Rabbah. We'll see. But at least the concept has entered the vocabulary. It was in 1972 that the first woman was ordained as a reform rabbi. In 1985, the first conservative woman ordained as a rabbi. So it's been a little time coming for Israel to listen to what's going on in the broader Jewish world. But they're listening. There's attraction and interest when you didn't have it before. And the most important reason why we have reason to pull together is the crossover of the population. It's not that we are one. But we are interconnected. No one imagined when the Zionist movement started that there would be hundreds of thousands of Israelis living in America. And half of them say, well, I'm going back next year. <laughs> 20 years, 30 years. I'm going back next year. You may have asked me. But they're rooted here. And they still feel attached to Israel. I know that there are Hebrew language preschool groups. So they can teach their kids to think about, so they can teach their kids to speak Hebrew. They want to learn the language. They want to stay connected to their homeland, even if their kids are being raised here. But the Israelis in America are American too. They say, why am I more free as a Jew here in America than I am in the Jewish state? The anthem says, to be a free people. And yet, I can get married how I want here. I can get buried how I want here. I can't do that in the Jewish state. What gives? And the same is true for Americans in Israel. Lots of Americans who have moved to Israel and lived there, but people who are temporarily there. You know, the Birthright Israel program is about 10 years old. It's had an amazing impact on the people who take this trip. And there are some concerns about propaganda and what's the agenda of the trip and is it a meat market? Well, yes, yes, yes. But it's also created emotional connections to that experience. And again, I make the analogy to New York. If you've never been to New York, and then you go there the first time, you go to the Lower East Side, you go to the Diamond District, or you go and you find a lot of Jews, you say, wow, this isn't where I grew up. I mean, maybe in Highland Park or Deerfield, used to being around a lot of Jews. But by and large, living in the Midwest, living in the Far West, you're 10%, 50%, even at the most. Here you're 30%. 40%. When you go to Israel, you're 80% or 90% of the people that you tend to meet. Well, it's a different experience. It changes your mentality of what it means to be Jewish. You're not just a few people, you're a real people. So what's the proper balance? Should we be invested? Should we be divested? Should we be antagonistic? Should we be supportive? Well, you hear it both ways. I remember the 1990s, when there was progress on the peace front, as the Oslo Peace Accords, and North Americans wanted to be supportive. Israelis on the right, who were not as supportive of the peace process, would say, you don't live here, shut up. If we make deals that give up land, make us less safe, you don't have to live here, so who are you to tell us what to do for our security? But then, about five years ago, 
and who to all Americans the Prime Minister, and he was negotiating with the Palestinians. And the word got out that he was even considering not only getting back some parts of the West Bank, pulling up some settlements, he was even considering sharing sovereignty in parts of Jerusalem itself. And now you've heard that same right wing saying, all Jews have a stake in the future of Jerusalem. Now that was the same argument the left was using in the 1990s. All Jews have a stake in the Jewish state. And now the left would say, who are you, you right-wingers, to interfere with we Israelis and what we choose? It was just the same arguments put in the opposite mouths. But I think that model of investment is an interesting I sometimes think of a loving relationship as an investment. I mean, I don't calculate risk benefit all the time. <laughs> but when you're finding someone you love and you're building a connection, you can take very little risk and get very little return. You invest just a little bit, you don't open yourself up, and you're not going to get very much back. But the more you invest, and the more open you are to the chance of getting hurt, the more you find the possibility of creating a lasting relationship and an honest relationship. You know, you don't want to be made of. You want to know what you're getting into. But you definitely need to be open to the possibility of return. And that's how I think about an American connection to Israel. The more we invest money, pay, time, energy, and commitment, we need to know what we're getting into. You need to read that perspective. If you understand what's going on there, you don't simply lock it in and leave it to the broker and forget it. You need to know what's going on. And you have a say. You have a say. It depends on how much you're invested in. You have shares. You have a voice. Now, those who live there have a much greater say. But those who live here who have made their investment of time, of energy, of language study, of whatever it may be, they have a say too. And they have an appropriate voice. Now, I might not sign my name to a petition that, is, uh, that regards voting rights, let's say, in Israel, because I don't live there, I don't have voting rights. But when it comes to the definition of the state, the right of Jews to be Jews and live as Jews as they choose to be Jews, there I have a voice, because there we all have a state. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.